This is a passage of scripture that comes in the middle of the greatest sermon that was ever preached. Jesus has just brought his disciples into the very epicenter of what is biblical ethics, Christian ethics, what are the ethics of the kingdom of God. And and what he's doing in this section is he is correcting misinterpretations of Pharisaic and self-righteous views of the law that try to reduce the law to something manageable and try to find in God's law the most manageable loophole to evade the actual depths of the law and the doing of God's law. One writer has put this so well as you consider the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the scribes and Pharisees looked at the law in such a way as to appear to be keeping it without keeping it. There was no real desire of the heart to keep it. So how they looked at the law was always to find the minimum requirement, always to look for the loophole, always to look for how little they had to do and how much they could get away with not doing. Now that's pertinent because in our passage tonight, the Lord Jesus is dealing with an exposition in part of the third commandment. And as he continues on in the sermon, he says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from literally the evil one. Uh, This week I was saddened to hear uh, the story of a celebrity Christian pastor, author, who uh, announced, he and his wife announced their divorce on Instagram. Probably not a good thing to do. Um, to make a PR move out of your divorce. And, and uh, in that, that statement, and it's gotten a lot of publicity because he was one of the forerunners of the courtship movement and wrote books on that when he was very young, um, announcing his divorce that he and his wife were loving one another and separating from one another. And they were respecting uh, the changes that had taken place in each other's lives. And again, making a PR move out of this on Instagram, um, I thought about this passage and what I was preparing for and thought, how sad, how very sad um, that we take vows like our marriage vows or church membership vows or ministerial vows so lightly in our culture. Uh, This man was also a pastor of a large, broadly Calvinistic church for a number of years has left ministry and is now saying he's rethinking even uh, what we would call a biblical sexual ethic. Um, It seems to me that vows don't mean much if you can celebrate your separation from your spouse and can talk about rethinking what the Bible so very clearly teaches. But it's a very common thing, isn't it? And, And the very fact that we have vows and oaths in this world is because we all, by nature, are liars. We, us, we like to lie. If you're sitting there and you say, I don't like to lie, you know, we don't teach our children to lie. You don't have to say, now, now, son, when you want to tell a lie, here's how to do it really well. Um, children know how to lie. We, like David says, come out of the womb speaking lies by nature. In fact, when the Apostle Paul wants to talk about depravity and he goes into the Psalms and he pulls out there in Romans chapter three, a number of Psalms to describe how pervasive our depravity is by nature. He fixates in many respects 
on just how much we like to lie. David, throughout the Psalms, writes things like this. None is righteous, no, not one. None understand. None seek for God. All turn aside. They've become worthless. None does good, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. They use their tongues to deceive. Now, David and Paul, by way of application, is saying all of us like to use our tongues to deceive. Now, as Christians, we're to be truth-loving and truth-speaking people. And Jesus is dealing here in the Sermon on the Mount with religious leaders who are trying to justify why they are not a people that keep their word in very sophisticated ways. Now, we're going to see two things tonight, just briefly. First, we're going to consider a renewed focus on oath-taking. You'll see that uh, in Jesus' dealings there in verse 33 to the beginning of 36, into 36. And then we're going to consider, secondly, um, a renewed focus on verbal integrity, a renewed focus on oath-taking and a renewed focus on verbal integrity. Now, um, on a prima facie reading of this passage, you'll come away and you may say Jesus is forbidding all vows and oath-taking because he says, I say to you, do not swear at all. James will pick up on this and use the exact same language that his brother used. And it's led some people that don't know their Bibles very well to conclude that Jesus is teaching you can never take vows and oaths. And that should seem weird if you take the view that Jesus is forbidding all vow-taking and oath-taking, then it should seem strange when your pastor took vows, uh, when we take vows before presbytery, when we do wedding vows, when we take vows for public office, when we even, dare I say it, sign contracts for anything that we enter into in this life. Jesus is not teaching that vows and oaths in all cases are wrong and sinful. How do we know that? Well, because strewn throughout the Old Testament, you will find references to patriarchs and kings and prophets. And then in the New Testament, to Jesus and the apostles themselves taking oaths and vows and adjuring the name of the Most High God. Uh, Abraham tells his servant when he sends him to get a wife for his son, swear to me by the Lord, Genesis 24, 5, that you will not find a wife for Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites. So Abraham, the head of the covenant, swears and makes his servant swear by the Lord, by Jehovah, that he would get him a wife from his own people. Leviticus 19.12 sheds more light on what Jesus is uh, prohibiting here. Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by pledge, Numbers 30, verse 2 says, He shall not break his word. He shall do according to all the proceeds out of his mouth. So in the law, in Numbers God says, if you make a vow by the name of the Lord your God, you should keep that vow. Uh, Rahab asks Joshua to swear by the Lord that Joshua would, would remember her and her father's house when they came in to Jericho. Swear to me by the Lord. And he does. Joshua does that. Uh, David's in the caves of Adullam. He's hiding from Saul. And on that one occasion, he goes into the cave where Saul is, spares his life, cuts off his robe, stands far away from him, lets him know it was in the power of his hands to kill Saul. Saul 
seems to be convicted and soft-hearted, but he's really not. But he says to David, "You're more, you're more righteous than me." And then he, and then Saul says to David because he knows his his time is ticking. Uh, under God's purposes and plans, he says, swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Now, David could have said, nope, can't swear by the Lord. But the next verse for Samuel 24, 22, and David swore this to Saul. Uh, Isaiah talks about new covenant blessings, and he speaks of those who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. Um, Jesus oftentimes appealed to his father as a witness to who he was. My father bears witness. That's a swearing. That's a calling on that being of which there is none greater to bear witness to um, what we are saying, what we are promising, what we have done. And then two times in Paul's letters, Romans 1, 9, and 10, Paul says, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. And then again in Philippians 1, 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, even greater than that, God swears by himself. So Hebrews chapter 6, one of the greatest theological statements for your soul in the Bible Um, The writer of Hebrews says that when God wanted to make a promise to Abraham and wanted Abraham to know how sure that promise was going to be, it's as if he ransacked the universe to look for uh, a a witness that was big enough and credible enough and unchangeable enough, and he could only find himself. And so the writer in Hebrews 6 says God swore by himself when there was none greater, saying in blessing I will bless you. And then the writer goes on to say that by two immutable things in which God can't change, by the oath and by his immutability, by his greatness, that promise is secure, and God swore it on his own being. That's the whole point of the cutting of the animals and God being willing to go through as one of the parties, as the sole party, as it were, representing both himself and Abraham. God is swearing by himself, and he is saying, I am going to do what I've promised to do. So it's a big deal when we talk about vows and oaths. It's a big deal for us. It's a big deal to God. It's been a big deal throughout the history of the church. And yet when we come to this passage, Jesus seems to be saying, don't do it. What is Jesus doing? Well, as we've already noted, the Pharisees were always looking for the loophole. And what the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees would oftentimes do is they would appeal to this rabbi or that rabbi and, and they would say, well, he says, if, if you don't swear by the name of God, and, you know, the, many of the Jews, most all the Jews have misunderstood the third commandment. It's not saying you can never say the name Yahweh, um, the covenant name of God. But, um, but uh, what it's saying is that we should not in any way whatsoever uh, misuse God's name for religious purposes or in any sort of cursing or as a witness in oath-taking that we should not in any way misrepresent the truthfulness of God. And yet what the rabbis did is they said, well, so if you just swear by religious things that are related to God but less than God, it's not as binding. I know this sounds ridiculous, 
but they literally had a system by which they could get out of keeping their words. So if you swore by the temple or Jerusalem or by your own hair, then it was less binding than if you swore by the name of the Lord. It's as if they understood the depths of the law and rejected it in favor of something that wasn't so constrictive. Because at the end of the day, the third commandment is devastating. It should be devastating. You should never read any portion of scripture in which it's speaking about telling the truth and come away and be like, I've done that my whole life. Like, if you do that, we got a problem. Remember what I said, all men by nature are liars, speaking lies, doing lies, living lies. Now, Jesus cuts through it with a renewed focus on oath-taking And what he's saying to them is, don't play religious games with oaths and vows. Because if you make an oath, you need to let your yes be yes and your no be no. And it doesn't matter what you swear by. It doesn't matter if you call certain individuals to witness what you're entering into voluntarily and in a binding sense. He is saying, don't do that. Don't play games with the law of God, which is exactly what they were doing. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism, just so you can know uh, what they have said about this historically, very helpfully um, addresses this issue when it asks the question, can we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner? They say yes. When the government demands it of its subjects, when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good, such oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. So there is a historical Protestant proof that oath-taking and vow-taking are good and right if they're done properly at proper times and in proper circumstances. Now, Um, let me say one thing before we move to the second point. Uh, We have all taken oaths and vows throughout our lives. Even if you've been with your spouse for 50 years, um, just staying with that person is not fulfilling the vows that you took to be with them. Um, There is a, there is a incredible depth to the law of God that goes far beyond a surfacey sort of getting by so that I can look at whatever vow or whatever oath I have ever taken and I ought to be able to say, I have not kept this as I ought. And we ought to constantly revisit what vows we've taken to, in a sense, renew those vows personally. Uh, Ecclesiastes says, don't be hasty to vow. Ecclesiastes 5, don't be hasty to make a vow before God. Better to, to not vow and not and pay than, than vow and not pay. Don't let your mouth be hasty to sin with your words. So we should be considering the weightiness of being men and women of our word in fulfilling the vows that we've taken. And so Jesus summarizes that now secondly for us by a renewed focus on verbal integrity. Notice verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Now, Jesus is cutting through this and he's saying, uh, my people should be different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. My people, Christians, should be uh, people who are men and women of their word. Their word should be their bond, as the old saying went. 
And, and there should be a sense where we are always pursuing that so that even if we failed along the way, the goal is always, I want to be a man or a woman of my word. I want to be careful with what I say. I want to be careful who I say it to and when I say it. And, and I want to be dependable. I, I want there to be integrity in my speech insofar as I am saying yes or no to anything. Now, I'll give you a simple illustration of the hurt that this causes. When I first started planning a church, I had a pastor um, basically promise to support us X amount of dollars the first year. And I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited and heard nothing and heard nothing and heard nothing and was counting on that. And that made the already difficult work even more difficult. So it's not just a matter of being in line with our words. It's the impact that our words have on our actions and how that affects others. That's why there's a weight to this. Not only representing the God of truth, what we say in our promises to others and our vows and our oaths has an impact on the lives of others. Now, um, Jesus wants us to live our lives as people before the Lord who is a God of truth. I want you to think about this. Um, The God in whom we live and move and have our being the God who gives us life and breath in all things, the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, the God who uh, inhabits eternity, that God has never told a lie. It's impossible for him to lie. That's amazing. That'll, like, hurt your head if you meditate on it so much. (laughs) It really does. There is a being in this universe who has never told a lie. He is infinite truth. Wow. Now, when I start to think about that, I think about all the lies I've told, and it is convicting and can be condemning. Um, David says in Psalm 15, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may dwell in his holy tent? And he answers it. In verse 8, he says, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, I read that as a new Christian and thought, great, I'm definitely not going to heaven. I mean, who's going to get to go to heaven? He or she who swears to their own hurt and does not change. We are changing every day of our lives. We are vacillating. And, And, you know, the most upright person with verbal integrity put in the right situation, the right circumstance, um, may find himself making egregious lies. There's a story of a guy that goes to a preacher and he says to the preacher, you know, I don't believe all this stuff about we're so sinful. I think I could go two weeks without sinning. And the man says, okay, go back, go home. Just try to do that with your wife. Come back and tell me how it went comes back and he said, so yeah, that was harder than I thought. And he said, but I know I could go a week without telling a lie. And the minister said, okay, go and, you know, come back and tell me what happened. As the story goes, the man comes back and he goes, that's not fair. He says to the minister, I just started a new job. I'm a realtor and it is impossible for me to do my job without lying. (laughs) Uh, the, the story illustrates the point that circumstances reveal 
our vacillation and our um, lack of integrity as God requires us to have. Now, if there was anybody in the universe put in a situation where he should have felt the pressure to lie or to break his vows, it was Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this in the garden. What is Jesus doing when he's when he's praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is in the garden uh, looking at the prospect of falling under the fiery wrath of God for our sin, for my sin, my lies, your sin, your lies. And he's he's looking forward. And here is the sinless son of God, fully man in every way that man is man yet without sin. And as he is looking forward to the prospect of the cross, and he knows that on the cross, uh, he who has had unbroken fellowship with his father, who came from the father, who in eternity was with the father, who pacted together, vowed in what we call a covenant of redemption to redeem a bunch of sinners like us. And he said, my father, I will lay down my life for these sinners. I will take the awful load of their unfaithfulness and lack of integrity on myself. I will bear the wrath that they should bear in hell forever. I will take it on myself. And as he is nearing the cross and as he's nearing that moment in time and space when that is going to be fulfilled and he is going to have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And knowing that he is going to have that that fellowship with the father broken, severed. It's unthinkable that a sinless man or woman would want to lose fellowship with God. And so when he prays, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, he's praying a sinless prayer. And at that moment, how easy it would have been for him to have turned back and said, there's got to be another way. And that's not what he said. And that's not what he was asking for. He wasn't saying there has to be another way. I don't want to keep my word. I don't want to keep my vow. He was pressing on and pressing through to be the man of his word. And here's what happens. If Jesus hadn't done that, you and I would go to hell forever. For all the times our yes was no. For all the times our no was yes. And Jesus comes and the Apostle Paul says it so well in in. 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, uh, in him, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes, and in him are amen to the glory of God. And that means that Jesus comes not only to say yes to the promises of blessing and inheritance and everything that God promised Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, but he comes to say yes to the covenant curses that God swore would fall on his people if they were rebellious. And he says to his father, yes, to those promises. He says, yes, I will become a curse. Those promises will be yes in me. They will be amen in me to the glory of God and for our salvation. Now, um, that means several things. First of all, that means that every I will that Jesus ever spoke ought to be the greatest comfort to our souls. Jesus has a number of I wills. There's a little book by E.M. Powers, I think, called The I Wills of Christ. Whoever comes to me, 
I will raise him up on the last day. Whoever believes in me, I will bring from death to life. Jesus has all these marvelous I will promises. And here's the reality. Jesus always keeps his word. He always kept his vows, even to his own hurt. And then secondly, that's good news for us, because Jesus, by keeping his vows, atones for all of our breaking of our vows. Isn't that awesome? He being the man of truth provides atonement for our untruth. Um, The slightest little lie, the slightest falsehood, the slightest embellishment. He takes all that on himself to forgive us and cleanse us and pardon us and clear us and justify us and bring us to glory. And here's the next thing it does. His death on the cross makes us want to be truth tellers ourselves, that we would love the truth, that we would pursue to be men and women of integrity. Now, what if the Christian church looked like that? What if we didn't have as high a ratio of divorce in the Christian church as the world does, as they say? Who knows if that's true? But what would it look like if Christians were men and women of integrity and truth speaking? What a witness to the world. I mean, the world doesn't know that. Politicians lie for a living. They lie to get elected. The world doesn't know this kind of ethic. But this is an ethic that is wrought by the Spirit of God working supernaturally in the hearts of his people to transform them into people they could not be otherwise and would not want to be otherwise, to make them want to be more and more like the Lord Jesus while confessing our failures along the way, knowing that he has atoned for our dishonesty whenever we've been dishonest. We're going to come to the table here in a minute, and every time we come to the table, Jesus is laying himself on the table, and he is saying, I have kept my word to redeem you. And every time we come to the broken bread and the poured out wine, Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how much you've sinned, it doesn't matter what you've done untruthfully, it doesn't matter how much you've spent your life lying, come to me. Feed on me, turn to me, and know that I have done everything necessary to cleanse you and forgive you, to pardon you, and and to renew you through what I've done in keeping my word and keeping my oath to redeem a people for myself. That's the epicenter of the supper. That's why the supper works. Let's pray together.